0: In each square, we had to draw a different plague, and it was very gory and bloody. And you could do frogs and flies and blood and all that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, when you're a nine or ten year old boy, RE lessons don't get much better than that. Ten judgments of God. The scene is set for a confrontation. The Hebrews are enslaved by the Egyptians. Uh, Moses is their spokesperson. And in their slavery, uh, God, their God, if you like, he is similarly enslaved. But he's going to set his people free. He's going to uh, break the bonds that bind them. He's going to lead them out of slavery and into freedom. And they're enslaved by Egypt, by their soldiers, their army. They're enslaved by Pharaoh, and they're enslaved by the Egyptian gods. It is the Egyptian gods who've commanded uh, this way of living for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, if you like, he's the spokesperson, or he's the embodiment of, of the highest of those gods, of Osiris. And he's concerned with keeping the status quo. And every time the Egyptians would walk through the streets, or go to work, or go in their homes, they would see around them the might of Egypt. They would see great statues to these Egyptian gods. They would see the murals and the frescoes that you can still see in the British Museum, depicting each and every one of the gods. And the Egyptians would believe that their slavery was ordained, and the Hebrews would believe that their slavery was ordained too. But God, the true God the living God is going to set his people free. And before he does that, he's first going to judge these lesser so-called gods and he's going to humble them that all might know that freedom is found at the hand of the true and living God. If you read through again, 7 to 12, you'll see that a pattern Um, recurs and reoccurs. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He has a word from God for Pharaoh and he says, let God's people go. Let the Hebrews free. And Pharaoh says no. And then Moses announces what the next judgment of God will be and when it will happen. And Pharaoh, it says, his heart is hardened. He turns his face away. And the plague falls or the the judgment falls. And after that event, uh, Moses goes back to Pharaoh and says, now will you let God's people go? And we read that Pharaoh's heart is hardened and the uh, the cycle follows. Each time, as we go through this sequence, the judgment becomes more severe. It becomes harsher, if you like. The stakes are raised. The first encounter, Moses says that the Lord will turn the river Nile to blood. And there was a guardian of the Nile. The Nile was strategically important for Egypt. It's where, where all the crops gained their water from. It's where people went down to uh, get uh, jugs of water. It was close to the Nile that people would uh, sink their wells. And all of this, it says, will be uh, become undrinkable. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. And the god Qum was the guardian of the Nile. And it was to the god of the Nile, Harpi, that uh, the Egyptians would sing their hymns. And in their hymns they would sing, "None can live here without him. And at a stroke, the Nile is made undrinkable. And the life uh, dries up within it. One nil to the true and living God. Will you let God's people go, Pharaoh's asked. No, he says. A second judgment falls. A plague of frogs. And there was a God in the Egyptian pantheon, a God who had the body of a frog. It was the God of fertility, the goddess Heketa. If you wanted to come, become pregnant, if you wanted to have a child, you would pray to the goddess Heket. You would uh, revere the frogs in the river. And in a kind of ironic joke, uh, God says, you want to see life? You want to see frogs? I will give you frogs. More frogs than you can contain. The gods Seb and Kepri are the gods of the earth. They're the lords of creation in the uh, egyptian mythology and yet the god yahweh the god of the hebrews who will create from the earth who will create flies and lice that will cause uh, discomfort and will cause uh, sickness and will cause people to to ask why is this happening to us the fifth and sixth plagues strike Egypt's livestock. And the bull god Apes and the cow god Hathor cannot save them. And Egypt's livestock die. The first plague, a river. Then the kind of landscape, the homes are infested with lice and flies and uh, frogs. Then it it gets even worse. The animals uh, die. You need food to live. Your wealth is your livestock. Will you let God's people go, Pharaoh's asked. No, he replies, and his heart is hardened. The sixth plague is a plague of boils. And this completely defeats the magic god Thoth and Himotep, the god of healing and medicine. Pharaoh's magicians can no longer appear before him. They're covered in boils. The seventh judgment is a storm of hail. Unheard of in Egypt, a hot, desert, dry place. A storm of hail comes and destroys the few remaining crops. The sky goddess Nut and the storm god Set cannot save the harvest. Pharaoh is humbled. He confesses his sin. He says the Hebrews can go free. It looks as though there's going to be a happy ending to this story. And then his heart is hardened. He turns his face away from the suffering of his slaves and reneges on his promise. There is an eighth judgment, an eighth plague. A plague of locusts. They descend out of nowhere, they eat up every green thing on the land, Uh, they wreak death and destruction. The country of Egypt had a divine guardian, the god Serapia, who took the form of a locust. Where is Serapia when Egypt needs him? And then the ninth judgment falls. For the Egyptians, a terrifying judgment. There will be 72 hours of darkness. God gives Pharaoh and his counsellors and his fellow leaders at court plenty of time to ask themselves, where is the sun god? Where is Amon Amun-Re, who rises every morning and sets every evening? Where is the sun god to whom we pray and who will deliver us? pharaoh is shaken and so he offers moses a compromise the men uh, the women and the children can go free they can head out into the desert but they can take no livestock with them they can take no food they can take nothing to sustain them they can take nothing so that they can offer sacrifice they can go free they can head out into the desert but without without livestock without sustenance they will surely die. And it's not enough. And so Moses declares, there will be a third, uh, 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 sorry, a final uh, terrifying judgment. A judgment of death upon the households of Egypt. Every uh, firstborn child in every house uh, will die. There's still a chance for escape. There's still a moment for Pharaoh to change his mind. There's still an opportunity for his counsellors to say, stop, think, look at what's happened so far. But that moment passes. The cycle repeats. And on the night before the judgment is to fall, God speaks to his people and to read from Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, They must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight." Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left in the morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On the same night I'll pass through Egypt and will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God is going to come in his most severe judgment. And it's going to result in the freedom of his people. Who at the moment are enslaved. They've got to be ready to go. They've got to have their cloak tucked into their belt, so they run, their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hands. And their last meal together is going to be a meal of lamb. A lamb without defect, slaughtered at twilight. Later on in the, uh, the passage, you read what they're to eat with this lamb. Bitter herbs, And unleavened bread. The blood on the doorposts is not a sign that God might know which house to avoid and which house to go into. It's not like a kind of paint or a secret symbol so he knows where to avoid. The blood is a sign that there's been a death in the house. That one has already died in that place. A sacrifice has been made. A debt has been paid. A death has occurred. So the firstborn in that house need not die. Imagine the, the eldest child looking at the lamb on the table. And thinking to themselves, the only reason I'm not dead... Is because that thing is. And the salvation is for everybody. They're all to eat of the lamb. They're all to have a taste. They're all to have a piece. There's a a portion for everyone. They're all to say, this is for me too. This salvation is for me too. This freedom is for me too. It's because of this lamb that I'm not dead too. And they're to commemorate this event every year in their history. They're to gather together, wherever they are, come together, and they're to uh, slay a lamb. And they're to eat it in this manner, as they remember the terrible judgment of God, but also his wonderful saving mercy and grace. They remember the freedom that is won for them on this day. the meal became uh, ritualised. had a very uh, strict uh, pattern to it that would be followed every year. And still today, when uh, Jewish families gather together for the Passover, they'll recite the same prayers, they'll have the same readings, they'll tell the same story. And at one moment in uh, the, the meeting as a family, the youngest child gets to ask a question. And the question is this, Why do we meet this night? And the the father, the, the president of the meal, he replies This is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered that we might be free. There's a there's a passover meal in the New Testament. It's um, repeated, the story is it is repeated uh, several times. And it's a Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples. It's a significant meal for him, it's a significant meal for them. Um, it takes place at twilight. It's the last meal that Jesus will have with his friends. Luke chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as he had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There's no child present to ask, Why do we meet this night? but it's that point in the ritual of the meal. And so Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. There's bread, which you'd have at a Passover meal. There's wine that you'd have in a Passover meal. But where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? There's no mention of the lamb. The lamb was the central part of the meal. The lamb was the the focus of the meal. The lamb was what the whole thing was about. Where is the lamb? The beginning of John's Gospel Jesus is walking along the river Jordan. And John the Baptist is baptising people for the forgiveness of their sins, that their sins might be uh, washed away symbolically. And he sees Jesus walking towards him. Do you remember what he says? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the one who is slain that others might not be. Jesus is the one who bears the judgment of God that others might not be. Jesus is the one who dies that others might live. This is my body, he says. This is my blood, he says. Throughout the Old Testament, on different occasions, God provides a substitute for his people. Isaac, about to die, his father sees a ram caught in the thicket and offers him as a sacrifice. The Passover lamb uh, dies. There is a death in the house So God in his judgment passes over that place. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So today we gather, and we gather to celebrate communion together. There's two things for us to remember as we do this. The first thing we do is we remember the sacrifice. Where is the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. That reading from Peter, 1 Peter 1, I read it just after the children went out. He saved you from an empty way of life with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of the world, revealed in these last days. This is my body. This is my blood. We gather to remember the sacrifice. And we eat the bread and we drink the wine and we receive by faith the Jesus Christ and as we do that we say I need this I need this just as every uh, child every family would eat of the lamb on the Passover and say, I need this I need to take hold of this this is for me I need a savior I need a redeemer I need someone to set me free and Jesus is the one who does that So as we meet together, we remember the sacrifice. But we do something else as well. We remember the freedom. This is the turning point in the life of Israel. In a few hours, they'll be walking to freedom. They'll be out of Egypt and they'll be on their journey to the promised land. And we're people who not just need salvation, but we're people who Jesus longs to set free. There are false gods, false idols in our world today. And you can see them all around you as you walk down the streets. Messages all the time that say, here is your salvation, here's where you find meaning, here is where you find life. And we call them family, or career, or relationships or ambition, or achievement, or health. And all these things are good things, but they can easily become idols or gods. And we can think we find our salvation in these things. And Jesus longs to set us free from those. And God is stronger than those things. Galatians 5 we read, It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. John writes to the church, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And as we eat and drink the bread and the wine today, we proclaim not just Christ's death, but his rising in glory, that he has won freedom for us. And we resolve to walk in that freedom in the light of his resurrection. He is bigger, he is stronger, he is victorious. Stronger than anything that would bind us, anything that would hold us back, anything that would destroy us, anything that would belittle us, anything that would change us. He is Lord and he is God and he rules on high and we rule with him. Paul writes to the church, you are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He died to set you free. Walk in that freedom. We don't gather together today just to remember a dead Savior. We remember a Savior who died and rose again and is alive. And we resolve to walk in the freedom that He has won for us. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us that. That in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine, we would know again your love for us, your grace for us, your salvation for us. And we would have a foretaste of that heavenly banquet where we'll know in freedom the full freedom that you have wrought for us. Lord, help us to walk in the light of the resurrection in the power of your spirit to your praise and glory Amen